The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Slate's Audiobook Club for March 2018. I'm Laura Miller, Slate's books and culture columnist and the host for this week's episode. Today I'm joined by Slate Plus editorial director Gabriel Raw. Hi Gabe. Hey Laura. And by Alex Barish, Slate's science intern. Hey, Laura. Hi, Alex. Today we'll be discussing The Sparshalt Affair by Alan Hollinghurst. This is a novel about several generations of gay men, particularly a father and son. It starts with David Sparshalt entering Oxford University as an engineering student during World War II and a bunch of other students there becoming obsessed with his um, magnificent physique. And it carries on with the life of his son, Johnny, who grows up into a much more out-of-the-closet gay culture in the 70s and up until the present. It's about art and love and society and class. And I think I think both of you will agree with me, it's about really amazing sentences. And I'm usually the kind of person who just goes, oh, don't go on about the sentences. Nobody reads a book for sentences. Just like nobody goes to see a movie for the photography or the lighting. But um, but in a way, these are so good that we'd probably read this guy writing about a duck pond in, <laughs> in Oxfordshire instead of all of this intrigue and sadness and unrequited love and love discovered when least expected. Okay, so but before we dig in, I'm saddened to say that this will be the last episode of the Audiobook Club, at least for a while. We're putting the show on hiatus, but Slate's books coverage will continue. For all our coverage and the Slate Book Review, check out slate.com slash books. Okay, so let's start with you, Gabe, because I know you are a huge Hollinghurst fan. In fact, I think I've heard you say he's your favorite novelist. Yeah, I, I have said that, and I, I will continue to give that answer when people ask me. <laughs> um, I've been reading him since I was in college, uh, shortly after The Swimming Pool Library. His first novel came out, which was a, a, a great um, succès de scandale. It was a book that uh, depicted the the um, physical specifics and intimate details of, of promiscuous gay life in London in the 1980s with a... Uh, precision and a kind of literary effect that was brand new for that kind of material. Uh, it's also, I think, a novel that does basically everything that a novel uh, can do and is supposed to do. Um, so I, I read all of his new books with a kind of eagerness that uh, is beyond any other author. And where do you rank this current one? Well, it, it it's tricky. Um, I've been <laughs> thinking about that a lot. I mean, the first thing I should say is I read The Sparshalt Affair first nine months ago when it was out in galleys in England, right. where it's published before it is here. Um, and I wonderful sentences, and I had a hard time sort of assimilating the whole thing. There, are, As I, I'm sure we'll talk about, there are various ways in which in this book, Hollinghurst seems to be deliberately putting up obstacles to the reader's comprehension. And then I reread it this week for this conversation, and I think really it's a book that insists on being reread. It's a book that really only comes together the second time when you've solved the puzzles, you've done the work, and now the the sort of kaleidoscopic chronological effect of all of these people, characters, threads, objects, buildings, pictures, artists, writers – 
being portrayed across almost a century's worth of, of time, um, finally all of those start to fall into place and the connections between them, which Hollinghurst doesn't make obvious but leaves there for you to discover. They're things that you can only tell when you read, when you go back to the beginning and read it again with a knowledge of how it all unfolds. Yeah, this is actually my first Hollinghurst novel, which is surprising given my uh, taste in literature, but I'm absolutely going to be pursuing the rest of his work after this. So, Gabe, if you have recommendations, <laughs> I'll have to talk to you after the podcast. Sure. I, the big ones, I should say, for you and for listeners, uh, The Swimming Pool Library's debut and, and The Line of Beauty, I think, are, which won the Booker Prize, uh, are, are the ones that most people will point to, and certainly you can't go wrong with either of those books. And really, they're all good. Yeah. yeah. There's one called The Spell, which is a, a short and sort of comic romance um, that I have a hard time Oh, okay. All right. I haven't read that one. Yeah, so. it's, yeah, I mean, it's for completists. Okay. <laughs> All right. So what was your response? Tell us as the novice. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, this was kind of made for me because I am a, a young gay man who went to Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> so I was really entranced by the first hundred pages, especially, uh, which are set there. But yeah, I mean, I, in recent years, have really wanted to kind of go on this journey of uncovering the, the gay history that you don't necessarily get from uh, other sources and the sort of culture that has long been suppressed or denied or elided. And so to have something that really painstakingly and beautifully reconstructs that culture and traces the arc of uh, gay society and, you know, the place of LGBTQ people within society as a whole was really powerful and moving, and I loved it. <laughs> One of the things that is a, a bit weird about this, given what it's sort of setting out to do, if you think of it as, as setting out to make an account over, you know, a generation and a half, let's say, of gay culture, is that AIDS is not mentioned in it at all, which is... A little bizarre. You would mm. think that someone Johnny's age would have lost many people that he was close to. And I do think that it is a subject that Hollinghurst doesn't really like writing about that much. Yes, that's interesting. Um, the Swimming Pool Library was written in the middle of the AIDS crisis and and comes out as a kind of nostalgic look back at the summer immediately before that crisis descended on the gay community. Um, and the line of beauty ends, I think, with some uh, ambiguous reference to an HIV test. I think we're never told the the result of that test. Uh, but it's true. It certainly hasn't been a, a subject for him. In this book, it, it, that's not the only thing that you might expect to be there that's elided. We should, mm. Maybe we should explain that the Sparshalt affair of the title um, is a, a, a sexual and political scandal in which David Sparshalt, one of the characters who's in the first section of the novel and then who's the father of a prominent character in the subsequent sections of the novel, um, David Sparshalt is involved in is a uh, uh, engineer and contractor who gets involved in a, a gay affair with someone involved in local politics in a I think in the northern town of Nuneaton and who which winds up implicating a member of parliament and and there's we're never given the specific details. Yeah, you get the sense it's yeah. some kind of group um, 
like an orgy or a menage of some kind that yeah. also involves prostitutes. There's some connection between gay sex and yeah. financial political corruption. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. I think it's made to mirror the Profumo affair in, in which members of parliament and, and heterosexual prostitution was all wrapped up. Um, but that event, the Sparshalt affair of the title, is kept entirely off stage. We find out about the characters before it and we find out about the characters in the aftermath, but we never actually see the whole thing unfolding and direct people directly responding to it. And, and in a way, it's a it's a kind of shadow that hangs over David Sparshalt's son, Jonathan, for, for the bulk of the book. What I noticed is that other than that one offstage thing, the, the gay men in the novel live lives starting in you know in World War II that are surprisingly free of persecution that is in the first sequence David Sparshalt and, and another Oxford man uh, Everett Dax have a gay tryst and neither of them are penalized for it and Everett Dax is discussing his sexual obsession with Sparshalt very openly with his friends including heterosexual friends and none of this seems to raise an eyebrow and in fact the only sexual scandal in that section uh, is when David Sparshalt and his girlfriend are caught together in their bedroom. <laughs> yeah. there's, a, there's a heterosexual sex scandal at Oxford. Um, through the whole novel, as the 20th century unfolds, um, we see new kinds of permissiveness and new kinds of sexual freedom, but we don't see anyone really experiencing bigotry or discrimination in any obvious or direct ways. Alex, I'm curious if you were struck by that. Yeah, I was, but I thought it was also interesting that Sort of in the same way that we don't see the affair, but we do see the aftermath. We see the way that this kind of this off-screen bigotry informs the way that gay men interact with each other in their day-to-day lives. That there are things that go unspoken and there's kind of an un, un, unwritten code in terms of how you interact with people and how you might signal uh, your own, your mutual interest in each other or your shared experiences. So... Yeah, it was interesting to me to see the the culture that arose in response to that persecution in the absence of the persecution itself. But I did feel like there were quite a few moments where we were kind of denied the drama and we were sort of informed about it, not from a safe remove, because there are characters for whom it's still quite fresh and for whom it does carry this emotional import. But it, it was interesting to see the way that even as society as a whole kind of moves on, it still has this profound impact on Johnny, for example, to the point where, you know, his father's affair has a Wikipedia page and there are people who weren't alive when it happened and they just casually Google it and find out about it and they're talking to him as though it's, you know, far enough away that it shouldn't matter and they don't really realize what it's done to him. So I thought it was interesting as a way of kind of tracing that psychological impact of the legacy of homophobia on an institutionalized level and on an individual level. I also think it has a lot to do with the class of the people who are involved. Yeah. And and Oxford had, until not that long before this action takes place, you couldn't be married and be a uh, tutor at Oxford. I mean, you it was a, sort of had a kind of clerical aura to it of like celibacy, but you know, nobody, you know that that wasn't the case. And so in a way, it, it was it's already this sort of crypto gay enclave. And 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 the narrator of the first part, the most of the book is is in the close third person, but the narrator of the first part is this straight man, um, Freddie. 
And he's just, you know, he's got this weird mother hen interest in like which of his friends who's interested in David Sparshall will get together and should he help and give passing information. He's got this sort of funny way of of facilitating the sort of crush ambiance around mm. David that is so girly and it, it's just so funny. But he but his attitude is very much, well, so much of that sort of thing <laughs> went on at school, at the boarding schools that, that they all went to, that it would really be surprising if it wasn't still going on sometimes. And then he has this incredibly tepid, you know, uh, thwarted, romance himself where he he tries to kiss this girl and she's like oh you don't understand anything and he's just like oh well <laughs> i mean it, it's like the heterosexuality that is supposed to be the counterpart to the 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 gay culture of that of those students is is like this wilting lettuce leaf, you know <laughs> <laughs> and whereas like the gay obsessions are just like exploding and so compelling and are obsessing everyone and including the guy who isn't even gay yeah i mean i think he has kind of a i don't know whether he's almost titillated by it he's kind of intrigued by this uh, underlying element of scandal and excitement. And I don't know that he's actually totally straight. I'm not sure how fruitful <laughs> that line of inquiry is. But uh, but yeah, I mean, there is kind of this this understanding of a public schoolboy kind of permissiveness of, oh, it happened at Eton, it'll happen at Oxford. But maybe there's an expectation that you don't talk about it as overtly as these characters go on to do or that you quote unquote grow out of it. And, you know, David Sparsholt does sort of try to to move on but then we get these intimations of his relationship with another man and it's clear that he hasn't left this part of his life behind in that sort of compartmentalized Oxford-only uh, way. I think it's also important that the man that he has the affair with that leads to the... Or the man... The, well, he ha he is having an affair with this mm -hmm. man that he has some kind of business connection with. And, um, and so the Sparshalt affair is this scandal but there is also the affair that he has with this with this other man and and after we get Freddie's little narrative which is written in this kind of funny slightly antiquated style which is but not it's not overdone it's very amusing in that way but it's very much like things that people who were at Oxford in the 40s would write like these kind of slightly old fashioned novels that people wrote um this then we go into the third person part and we're at this Cornwall vacation and Johnny is 16, 17, something like that. And, you know, it's his father. And then there's this other couple and his father is always going off to sort of work with this man who he does work with. And it's only gradually that you're getting the idea that there's something else going on and that you, it's not really clear how much the wives know about it. But at one point, the thing that the wife of the, of, his lover, his secret lover, gets kind of weird and prickly about is the fact that David went to Oxford. It's like this issue where like suddenly they realize that he's from a higher class and mm. they are and they become uncomfortable with that. Or and not actually from a higher class, but that he had a brief interlude, less yes, than a year, yeah, during yeah. which he got to visit yeah. with that higher class, yes. during which he formed relationships with members of the literati. Freddie Green, who who is the, the fictional author of the memoir that 
constitutes the first section that's set at Oxford, then appears on television on a panel show that they're watching from their sort of slightly seedy Cornwall uh, holiday cottage. And no one makes that connection at all, I think. But but here's David Sparshalt. He's had his brush with the literati. And, and here's his wife, Connie, who was there, who came for a visit. We see her going to the pub with Freddie Green. And now she doesn't recognize him as the man she went to the pub with. She only recognizes him as the clever man answering questions on the quiz show, which she also feels the need to compete with and to shout out mm-hmm. her own answers to the questions. Th- there's that sense that sh- she never even had the opportunity that David Sparshalt had of those eight months at Oxford, which he chose not to go back to after his distinguished service in the Air Force during the war. But so the, the, but the other family, it, it antagonizes them to know mm. that he had this. Like they, I don't know if she, th- the wife thinks that he's putting on air, but it's presented as something that they should sort of be ashamed of in this mm. weird way or that makes it, them... It, it gets her hackles up. It's a very strange thing where she's just like needling um, David's wife about it and you're like, what is the subtext of this? <laughs> I think the subtext of it is straightforward English class resentment. Yeah. Um, that, that it's, oh, well, she thinks she's better than us or because she's married to someone who was at Oxford for eight months before the war. So do you think the two wives know what's going on overtly or sort of subconsciously? I I don't think so. I think Connie may have an intimation of David's relationships with other men, but I don't think at that moment that she suspects uh, Clifford specifically. I think that that, I mean, we, we don't really know because we never hear her side of that story after the fact. And we never hear David's either, for that matter. It's sort of something that's written around and talked about or reacted to by other characters. But the, the central players never get to weigh in on how they felt about it. Yeah. I mean, David, even when he appears much later in the novel as the sort of elderly father having lunch with his son in their club, which is for former members of the Air Force, mm-hmm. Air Force veterans, which is his identity. I mean, an interesting thing about this story is, is David gay? I mean, he does not identify as gay. And 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 he has two extended heterosexual marriages. Yeah, he goes on to marry another woman after the Sparshall affair. Right. Well, he goes on to marry his secretary, who we see. This is the kind of thing you only realize when you read it the <laughs> second time. Um, but he goes on to marry um, the secretary, who we see coming to dinner when Connie was out yeah. during the holiday sequence. Yeah. So he's already he's conducting some kind of um, sexual subterfuge heterosexually at the same time that he's having mm-hmm. the scandalous affair with the. Yeah, he gets around. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he but when you but when he appears as a character in a book he seems to just be completely uptight and very fixated on his you know the military career he's about to have when he's in Oxford and I think the fact that he's an engineer makes him like the antithesis of all of the sort of artsy people that Johnny will later spent his time with Mm -hmm. and then you know when we see him at the end he's like you imagine him with this like ramrod straight posture and like any opportunity to wear his old dress uniform and you know hang out at the club with all the other former pilots or whatever it was he was he a pilot he was yeah was a pilot well i mean that's 
pretty hot stuff. So you could see why <laughs> you wouldn't want to. Re- we would want to remember that. But you know, that's that's like his identity. That's the identity that he's chosen for himself. So, um, so he almost doesn't have a gay identity, although he has had these gay experiences. And also, his his gay experiences sort of come to threaten that identity for him because he he doesn't feel able to go back to the RAF club for something like yeah. ten years after the incident. Uh, after the Sparshold affair, because he, he ends up going to prison, doesn't he? Yeah. And then after he comes back, he just can't face his uh, uh, former... Squadron mates. Squadron mates, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Until he's invited back by another member of the RAF, and then he's sort of like, okay, I can go back into this world, and this can be me again, yeah. which I found quite interesting. We never see David's interiority. We, right. we yeah. there, there are no sections of the novel that that are from set from his point of view. Um but it's very easy to empathize with this man who is sort of preoccupied with ideas of duty and rectitude and then who also has these desires that don't conform to that and and mm-hmm. who finds himself acting on them and then um, finds himself massively publicly shamed by them um, mm-hmm. to a degree that um, would in a way threaten to destroy your life. Uh, and when we see him at the end, an old man and a diminished figure, but diminished mostly by age and the, the fact that he's um, preserved his dignity, the fact that he is able to, I don't know, there's something quite moving about yeah. about yeah. seeing someone who's gone through something like that that's such a threat to everything that he is and survived it. He's not a, um, you know, it's hard to f- think, you can't, you don't look at him, I, I don't feel, look at him, like you feel bad that he can't really communicate well with his son, mm-hmm. um, but you, you don't, you, you don't look at him and think, oh, he, you know, his life was ruined because he was in the closet. Like, that almost seems like you wouldn't, couldn't define that life that way. It's a very ambiguous life. It's a hard life to, to put a contemporary understanding on. But let's talk about Johnny because he's the main part of the book. And it's funny because he is, you were, t- Alex, you were talking about how Johnny suffers the repercussions with the Sparshalt affair. Mm-hmm. But he's such a sort of amiable, easygoing he's kind a of sweetheart. guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like he's not that different at the beginning of the narrative than he is at the end. And so there's not, it's not, it's really not a narrative of personal transformation. It's a narrative of social transformation. And you know he he has these uh, these frustrated desires and nobody writes better than Hollinghurst about like these desires that how they just you know are kind of overwhelming because they can't even be you can't even let a clue you know a bit of them slip out but then that intensifies them and but then he moves into this basically a long marriage that's very happy and um which is what he always wanted eventually and he's he, I, I always, I got the feeling with the Sparshot thing that he just, he spent his life bracing himself yeah. to say his name because it's an unusual name, and so everyone knows, everyone will be, you mean like, you know, and then he's just like, I just have to just come past this one bit, you yeah. know, and and it it is like a legacy of homophobia, but it's also just kind of a legacy of sort of 
publicity or tabloid culture in this weird way where he's like, you think, yeah, okay, okay, all right, all right, all right. And then he just has to sit through it and wait until yeah. they get over it and start to see him for who he is. Yeah, there's an interesting part toward the end of the novel that I wanted to get your opinions on. Uh, he, after shortly after his husband passes away at quite a young age, I think something like 60, so he suddenly finds himself alone and is sort of trying to put himself back out there. And he downloads Grindr <laughs> and uh, he ends up uh, meeting up with this much younger man who is, I think, still a student or in his early 20s. And he finds himself in this bizarre situation of explaining the Sparshalt affair to someone else just out of <laughs> compulsion. Like he's he's been waiting for this. He's, he's been bracing for this, as you say, his whole life. And then suddenly someone has no idea what he's talking about. This kid thinks that it's a film or a book. And he says, oh, I, I don't really have time to read, so I don't know anything about that. That's so good. So, <laughs> I, I mean, I had problems with that scene overall because I just felt like Michael was this caricature of uh, the new generation. But I did find it interesting that after a whole lifetime of kind of, oh, what are they going to think of the Sparshalt affair? And are they going to pity me? Or are they going to uh, have a hostile reaction? Or are they going to make assumptions about me because I'm gay and my father had this scandal? And then suddenly he's just very abruptly irrelevant and doesn't really know what to do with that. <laughs> I think part of it in that sequence is that he, he finds himself, as you say, he's newly bereaved and he's, you know, he's old to be downloading Grindr for the first time. <laughs> um, he's not, it's been a long time since he's gone out on a date and everything yeah. is different now. Um, and he winds up in this house with this guy who has, you know, he's a young guy. He has a laptop and he has a phone and he's always getting messages and checking his messages and there's music, there's a, a TV is on with a videos, a music videos playing. Um, and, and you can feel Johnny, this man in his 60s who's had a long life surrounded by cultured people and, and deep relationships. Um, there are only smooth surfaces and there's nothing for him to get any purchase on mm -hmm. in that room. And he's desperately trying to just anchor himself to something. And the first thing that he reaches for is this millstone that's been around his neck yeah. for his whole life. Yeah. And that doesn't work as an anchor either. There's <laughs> nothing that can that can tie him down and connect him to, to whatever is going on. Yeah. Um, I, I agree there is an element of caricature in that character and in the sequence, but that experience of sort of all of these shiny surfaces and nothing to grab a hold of and a feeling of being unmoored from the world, I think is conveyed quite powerfully. Oh, yeah, I agree. Also, I just have to say, I have known that guy. <laughs> now, admittedly, I haven't had been trying to have sex with him the way Johnny is and then Michael keeps checking his phone um, to talk to and showing him... It's it's such a it's it's sort of like you know very open hearted in a way you know he just wants to talk about all the men that he or Johnny or whoever could be having sex with you know but it's just like the the sort of marketplace of partners he he wants to like have a bonding moment over mm -hmm. talking about that and it's just so unfathomable to Johnny. There, it's interesting because. Um, in other Hollinghurst books, some of the sex is described very graphically and with anatomical detail. In in someone I remember, a, a reviewer going through the swimming pool library and just picking out the descriptions of penises. Yeah. And there are <laughs> so many them really fantastic well. <laughs> descriptions yeah. of penises in that book. Yeah. 
in the Sparshalta fair, there are very there's a lot of sex, but there are very few close descriptions of penises or genitals or sexual mm-hmm. or acts. Or exactly what was happening. Yes, yeah. except the the only place where he really pulls into tight focus is in that scene we were talking about where Johnny is at Mark's house and Mark shows him on the laptop. Uh, Mark shows him on his laptop a tumbler of. <laughs> Pornography. <laughs> he yeah. describes him as a friend of his, but it turns out they've never met. Yeah. They're internet friends. Um, but it's it's a clip of a man masturbating and also mm-hmm. pleasuring himself with a dildo, and it's described with a kind of brutal lucidity or yeah. lucid brutality that that is elsewhere absent from the book. Um, and it makes me think about what purpose the more delicate treatment is serving all of in in all of the other scenes. That that pulling back actually accomplishes something there. Well, yeah, the the sort of sex, the sexual encounter that is the sort of most intensely romantic or, you know, overwrought one in the whole book is the first one that mm. is sort of depicted, even though what we get is Freddie telling us, us what Everett told him about what happened. Um, and only much later do we have Everett's sort of glancing take on it but it's the night the one night that he has with David who he is completely in love with and um and David won't t- turns off the lights so it just it happens in the dark and and i in a way it it's that you know like i we were having a conversation about it where i said there's so many fade outs at the sex scenes, I, mm. you know, which is I was like, I was a little disappointed because, you know, all here's sort of famous for for his sex scenes. And um, and and I mentioned that one. It's like he turns off the light and they kind of close the door and you don't see it. But I think it might be sort of deliberate in this sense in that it had a certain purpose. The explicitness had a certain purpose in Swimming Pool Library, which is let's really write about this thing in the most literary way that we can or I can and in this it it's almost like the darkness of that room creates this intensity that he misses you know that that makes that night this thing that sort of redounds across decades mm. and um and and I and I think that he I think what he doesn't like or not I wouldn't even say doesn't like because he's just sort of bemused by Michael like Johnny is like well fancy that who knew that people were doing this <laughs> he's like wow but you know he, he he's neither one way or the other about it but I think that that night the ease of it and the the kind of conviviality of it even though it is a little bit over mediated um mm-hmm. is it seems pale and thin to him compared to the intensity of that one that what happens in that dark room yeah darkness is important i think there's that first sequence the oxford sequence and the that that first sexual encounter takes place during the wartime blackout when all of the lights in all of town have been turned out and and there's sequences in which people are he's walking somebody back to her rooms and they have they they bump into people as they're walking down the street because you literally can't see a foot in front of you and subsequently, um, when he is in in London in the seventies, when Johnny Sparshalt is in London in the seventies, getting reacquainted with with the men his father knew at Oxford, 
Um, it takes place during the energy crisis of 1974, and the power keeps going out. And then there's a final sequence where he, he falls in love, as it were, for the last time uh, in a nightclub, uh, in a basement nightclub, which is portrayed as a place that's absolutely black apart from pulsing strobe lights. And I think that what Hollinghurst is trying to depict is a kind of continuity of um, intense experience that takes place in the dark, um, that that's what gay life is through history is to him. It's these incredibly intense connections that are forged in the dark. Yeah, I mean, it's you don't want to say... <laughs> it was so much better back then. I'm sure it was much better if you were a an Oxford Don or a member of the class that went to Oxford than if you were just sort of a working man in London or Manchester or someplace like that. Um, but, you know, there... <laughs> You don't want to approve of it sort of ideologically, but on the other hand, you can see how the forbidden, secretive nature of that desire and the way the desire builds and builds and builds because it's constantly being denied, that it becomes so intense that it seems so much more vivid than this kind of, you know, you know, flick right. Well, the club seems like a lot of fun too. Yeah, though. the club yeah. does. I think maybe that's where he brings them together. Yeah, yeah. He, he, yeah. he gets to take ecstasy and and he meets a wonderful young Brazilian man who turns out to be a yeah. compassionate helpmeet to him yeah. after his father's death. And and it, it, there's a lovely feeling of both community and sexual intensity. I don't think anyone, I don't think Hollinghurst or any of the characters would trade that. Yeah, yeah. and I think there are also moments in darkness that are deferrals unto themselves, like in. Uh, there's a moment in the house that is owned by Everett, which sort of becomes a haven for various gay characters from various different generations over the course of the novel. But uh, Johnny is there on his first visit, and he's just encountered Ivan, who is Everett's assistant, who is close in age to him, and they're sort of a mutual attraction there, although possibly more so on Johnny's side, as we uh, eventually find out. But this is during a power outage, uh, Johnny and Ivan have sort of slipped away upstairs to Ivan's room and they are presumably about to have sex. Uh, so he's guiding him up the stairs and Hollinghurst writes, It was extremely cold and Johnny hugged himself before he hugged Ivan. Hands slipped round him inside his jacket and then he found he had kissed him. So this is my room, Ivan said, holding him back with his free hand as if overlooking what had just happened and delaying whatever might happen next. Johnny laughed in the dark just at the moment the overhead light came on. Oh shit! From far downstairs, the noise of jeering relief, just tinged with regret, made a weird acoustic comment on their situation, squinting under the bright bulb of the attic room. So that is uh, yeah. a, a point in favor of the argument for darkness yeah. as uh, allowing well, he, for desire. He has explicitly, Hollinghurst has explicitly said that what intrigues him in fiction is this, is the secrets, the, mm -hmm. the communication that happens. I mean, I think in particular, he loves those moments where two men are able to communicate their interest in each other without being overt about it in, in or just so only they can see it you know this certain kind of w way of looking at each other or speaking and he misses that and even freddie is like 
a code breaker. I mean, that, I mean, I think that's very. It's he's working in the um, Blenheim Palace. <laughs> yeah, he's working, and so does Connie. Right? Yeah. She's yeah. like one of the probably what they used to call computers back then. The women hired to do the mathematics to help break the German codes. Um, you know, he he just really likes the codes and the, the the layered meanings and the secret meanings and the shared secret of um, of this desire that maybe it's just totally caught up with his youth because obviously that experience still happens. But I'm sure in the course of Alan Hollinghurst's life, he has had to be more discreet about his sexuality in the past and then less so as he got older. And um, and maybe he's just confusing that hiddenness with the intensity of youthful desire. Mm. But um, but he does seem to really, really like the sort of multi-layered meanings of the of the situation of concealing desire. One of the things, I'm youth and age are a theme in this novel, and and um, I one of the sort of striking things about it is is the way in which it follows all of its threads all the way to the end. Mm-hmm. That it, it seems to be about at first it seems to be about a, a passionate tryst at Oxford during the war, and then it seems to be about a sex scandal that happened, I think, in the 1960s, and then it keeps going, and it seems as though we're seeing the aftermath of those things, and. Then we see the aftermath of the aftermath, and then the aftermath of that. That it 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 keeps going after what you would imagine would be the climax, and it turns out that it's not actually about the climax at all. That actually it's about the the constant unfolding process of response and of forgetting and of loss. Mm-hmm. That by the end, the Sparshall affair, as we talked about, has been forgotten by a whole generation of people, that by the end, um, all of the memories of all of the time at Oxford sort of resurface in these small ways that in the end don't seem to mean all of that much to people who are busy getting on with their lives and are, are trying to stay alive and ultimately dying. And um, it, it seems to me that, that the passage of time and the, the slow unspooling of life is sort of the secret theme of the book underneath all of the passion and intensity and scandal. And, and um, I wonder what you guys think about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it may also be worth noting that there are sort of any number of Sparshalt affairs as such. And you spend a portion of the novel kind of trying to work out what the title means, because is the Sparshalt affair that initial encounter with Everett at Oxford? Is it this political scandal? And then uh, there's a point toward the end where uh, Johnny, who is a painter, is doing this gigantic portrait of this uh, rich family. And they're sort of the family's private joke is to refer to the portrait as the Sparshalt affair because it's like, oh, here we go again, sitting down for this painter, Johnny Sparshalt, to, to do our portrait. So the fact that the very title means different things to different people and takes on more or less meaning as time goes on in different contexts was interesting to me. And I think, to your point, uh, there's a moment early on, because the initial encounter with Everett is sort of transactional in a way, um, the the heterosexual scandal that you mentioned earlier on. David Sparsholt uh, is fined by the college for £20, which was a lot of money at the time, uh, because of his uh, because he's been caught having sex with his fiance, and Everett offers to cover the cost of the fine because he has the money to spare. 
And it's money that he had initially set aside to buy a painting. And he describes it as, he describes making that trade, sort of uh, paying Sparschultz way and then having this intimate encounter with him as an unexpected surrender of something lifeless but lasting for something impulsive and unrepeatable. And uh, (laughs) that feels like quite a good encapsulation of a lot of what's happening in the book because a lot of the main characters are these artistic types who are trying to uh, set the past down or memorialize something in the form of a painting or in the form of a memoir. They have a memoir club. Uh, And it's sort of the tension between that effort to make these things immortal and the the momentary more powerful enjoyment as it unfolds yes although the idea about art as something lifeless but lasting or or, or immortal um is complicated in various ways johnny sparshall when we first see him as an adult is working as a picture restorer is, mm-hmm. is um putting back together paintings that have been damaged and and going out to look at uh, old frames that are potentially fakes but might be real um, and at the end of the book, um, Everett Dax's collection, the collection to which he could have added that 20-pound painting, but, but which he had to sacrifice, um, at the end we see the collection being appraised and then broken up and sold at auction. Um, and the sort of sadness of he has to sell the pictures because he's too old and he needs to, his house is falling apart and he needs money. And in any case, what good is it going to do him to have all these pictures? But the sadness of giving up what he had thought was going to be the one lasting thing, the the, the art that he had thought would would uh, survive him. Um, it, there's a, it, there's a, a powerfully tragic, uh, there's a tragic power in that scene. One of my favorite motifs is the drawing of David that one of the other Oxford classmates who ends up dying in the war, this kind of your classic esthete, you know, he's like right out of Brian's head. Yeah, Yeah, he's so great. Um, His name is Peter, right? Yeah, Peter Coyle. Yeah, he does this drawing of David who's like kind of like a body, like he's a sort of uh, not a bodybuilder before bodybuilding was quite, you know, but he's he's like always working out with these little dumbbells and has this amazing body. And he does this red chalk drawing of him without a head, you know, so he's not identifiable. And this drawing sort of passes from one person to another through the narrative. And at one point, doesn't it come into Johnny's possession without him even realizing it's a drawing of his father? Yes, that's right. Everett, Everett, I'm sorry, Everett gives it to him. And only after he reads the little memoir that was at the very beginning of the book does he realize that it's a drawing of his father. One thing that's interesting about that painting or that sketch is that from what we can tell, it's not actually very good. It's not a good likeness. It's sort of this overblown rendering or this glorification of David Sparshall to the point where even people who know him don't immediately understand that it's him. Freddie's evaluation of it is that it is sort of abstracted from the real person. And that is something that I found was interesting. There's sort of a recurring theme of artists and authors, including Everett's own father, who are maybe not as good as uh, their their reputation might suggest and sort of the, de- the, the decay of those reputations over time. Yeah. There are, you know, uh, Goyle is uh, thought of very favorably initially and then sort of falls out of fashion. And uh, Dax is initially this big deal who gets invited to Oxford to speak to the students. And then his auditorium gets... Uh, 
torn down at the end of the novel because nobody yeah. can remember who he this is. is. This is Everett's father who writes these, um, really, they sound just like dreadful Do we get the sense of novel. them as symbolic, epic romances, yeah. Um, yeah. completely without humor at all? Uh, yeah. Even at the time, even even when we first hear about them, he's described as one of those people who's always listed as um, underappreciated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think of him as being a little bit like William Gas or something. Yeah, that's yeah. probably right, a British yeah. William Gas. Um, yeah. I, I'm not going to Some of the descriptions it. of that particular author and the way that he behaves and what his books are like are so funny and so on the mark mm. that they're... they're that they're some of my favorite parts of the book, even though they're just really just kind of like ancillary <laughs> to yeah. everything else that's going on. Yeah, the the the, the made up culture, the fake novel, the the yeah. fictional novels and the fictional paintings and everything, and are so and fictional architecture as well are mm-hmm. so richly drawn that that um, there's an entire sort of fictional aesthetic cosmology that exists within this book. Yeah. There's something I'd like to ask you guys about. Um, to do with the the uh, a formal aspect of this book that was uh, baffling to me at first, um, which is to do with the way Hollinghurst parcels out information. Um, one of the things that we know about him from his previous books is that he's very good at giving you the information you need to understand something without making it be obvious. He's ve- he's very good at. Um, Exposi- at subtle exposition. And if he wants to frame a scene and let you know who the people are and what's at stake in the scene, then he can always do that. And in this book, he repeatedly refuses to frame things in that way. He repeatedly drops you into a scene without an understanding of where you are, of who's talking, of what the relationships between the people are. The, the book is divided into five sections and each one jumps ahead in time by 10 or more years. And not only does he not give you a date, he he doesn't he doesn't give you anything. You have to infer everything, and quite often, very important contextual information is withheld for a, a uncomfortably long time, mm. for chapters and chapters. Um, the sequence in Cornwall where the, the Sparshot family, David the father, Connie the mother, and Johnny the son, the teenager, have gone off on holiday with Bastien, the French exchange <laughs> yeah. student, the sexy French exchange student. <laughs> Um, what's important about the sequence is that last year, Bastien and Johnny spent the summer together at Bastien's house in France and they had a, a teenage love affair and they had this passionate sexual thing. And now Bastien is back and he's not into it anymore. Mm. And it's excruciatingly painful for Johnny. And it's a wonderful sequence and it's full of on- teenage angst and, and discomfort and lust. But we don't learn about the backstory. We don't learn the context until we're more than halfway through the sequence, at which point everything we've seen retroactively, the hints that we've gotten suddenly come clear. But the the nature of the drama or the nature of the farce didn't make sense to us fully until we're more than halfway through. That's only one example of many. I wonder what you guys think of that strategy of delaying information. I found it quite interesting as a way of sort of getting at the things that don't often get acknowledged publicly. Because another instance of something that we don't find out until pretty late after the kind of hints have been dropped is that one of uh, one of David Sparschalt's contemporaries at Oxford has had a stroke. And we don't know that for most of this that section of the book. We know that he's struggling to remember things and that he's not really uh, behaving in the way that people are used to him behaving. But we don't find out why for some time. And his lover sort of internally uh, acknowledges that people don't like to talk about that stroke or people don't like to, even though they are keen to help 
they feel as though it's something they shouldn't speak of. And I think that for a lot of the things that we don't have the context for, they are those things that are sort of considered unspeakable in that time. And then we eventually find out what's going on through force of feeling or through just this casual aside and then suddenly it all makes sense. And I quite like that as a mechanism, but it is very interesting. I guess I, you know, don't, you're right. Like when I think of Line of Beauty, I feel like every character gets situated so that you understand how they fit into this elaborate, you know, machinery of what's happening and politics and class and and money that... um, that are such a fixation in that in that novel, and in this you're often sort of at sea, and you're trying to pick up on what the meaning of this or that word or gesture or event might be. Um, I don't, you know, I don't have an answer for why he 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 does that artistically. Maybe he wants to continually. Um, throw you into this uncertainty of sort of reading the world that 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 Johnny is basically or just any of the characters going through trying to sort of figure out what's really going on with other people and and you know Johnny has this whole thing where he's into Ivan and then only very late in the narrative is just we we find out before he does that that Ivan is only really into older, much older men. And this is kind of an exception for him. And it's really frustrating for Johnny. And, um, but, you know, like, I was like, does Ivan like him or not? Or what's going on here? But that's exactly how David is feeling about it. Uh, I'm sorry. That's exactly how Johnny is feeling about it. And so it puts us in the position of, of of not knowing and trying to figure it out and to trying to read the code and 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 get at the underlying meaning. He does deliberately put you in the shoes of the outsider a lot of the time. You know, there's a sequence that's narrated by Johnny's young daughter Lucy, who obviously is not privy to this world at all. And there's a lot of really good description of her kind of trying to keep up with the adult conversation and she'll latch onto a name that she thinks she knows and then it turns out it's actually someone else entirely and she's just adrift again. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's another sequence where a character uh, has gone to the loo during a, a wake and he comes back and people are laughing about something and he's missed the joke. That's and, really striking. That yeah. part. There's a big revelation when our point of view character has gone to the bathroom. Yeah. You, you didn't have to make him go to the bathroom then. <laughs> yeah. And I, I found that quite interesting. And I feel like it does sort of speak to the, the real experience of trying to get back into the joke that you've missed or to the revelation that you haven't had or the the context that you lack. That's right. It's also, I think, a big part of Johnny's experience growing up with the Sparshalt affair sort of hanging over his head as something Mm. that always took place outside of his field of vision that went on without him knowing about it, but that now looms constantly over every interaction he has with anybody. He's always on the back foot, just as the book always puts us on the back foot. I think that he might, Hollinghurst might be thinking that there's a certain pleasure to trying to figure these things out Mm. and that he's providing that to, <laughs> to us because for him that is part of the pleasure of 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 his identity so i think we should all read a, a sentence from this book there are so many great sentences i'm not even going to ask or suggest that you could ever pick your favorite one but ones that are very st- striking or that just made you underline them and put a star in the margin and want to die that you can't write like this guy, which is, I think, how many, many writers feel. 
Um, and mine's just very short. And it's it's a moment when um, when Johnny picks up a guy at an art gallery, and this is in the '70s, and he's young, and and he's just exploring his freedom for the first time. And it's striking because um, the 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 passage this this tryst that he has with this guy in his apartment, which is never repeated, um, is uh, is told from Johnny's point of view. But then this one sentence kind of suddenly gives you the point of view of Colin, this man. And it's just a, a beautiful metaphor um, that I underlined. Johnny's hair grew heavy and dark under the falling water and unwaved itself into a shiny point between his shoulder blades. Very nice. Which is something that Johnny himself could never have seen. So it gives us this little moment in in Colin's Colin's mind. All right. Here's here's um, uh, uh, from a passage in which um, Everett Dax, the son of the boring novelist, um, is writing a memoir of his father or a biography of his father. Um, and Everett is himself getting old, and his powers of concentration are not once are not what they once were. Uh, and he's not having an easy time of, of writing the novel. Over lunch, at Casper's or at the Garrick, he would be asked how work was going, when it could be expected, and the confidence of the questioner severely inhibited his answers. They had a bottle of wine, no more, but still the atmosphere was appreciably softened. His little hints at difficulties were taken as mere modesty. I'm sure it will be marvelous. It will take as long as it takes. And he left, fractionally consoled himself, as if some great humane reprieve were somehow possible, and time, as deadline after deadline loomed and fell away behind, were not an overriding question. <laughs> I underlined that one, too. I felt like... <laughs> Every writer knows that. Whoa. <laughs> it's just a few senses that really captures like a whole kind of dysfunction that we all know too well. I just want to point out that I didn't cheat. That's one sentence, a massively hyper-compound sentence. <laughs> Mine is early on when a character is talking about her childhood. Um, I had a difficult upbringing, she said. By difficult, I mean harsh and loveless and confusing. I thought she might have been describing a historical era, not the girlhood whose closing years she still inhabited. <laughs> that is so, there's so much in that sentence. I mean, I think that's one of the things that as a writer you're, you, you can be awestruck by is how much meaning and connotation and nuance he gets into a single sentence. Yeah. And I re you read it slowly, but it's not hard to read, which is the other thing that consistently blows me away because anybody can write really convoluted, compacted um, sentences that have to be decoded, you know, literally. You know, anybody can write a really hard, dense text. No, well, not anybody, but a lot of people can. But this is such a beautiful, elegant, kind of classical style, and yet there's just so much meaning in there. Yeah, you can really tell that the words have been chosen with care and that they say exactly what he wanted them yeah. to. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> he makes us all feel that way. I mean, I think there is a writer who, who joked that that he is the novelist who's most likely to make other novelists give up in despair. <laughs> it's true, although I should say that when I was writing a novel, I would turn to his books every day whenever there was a technical problem that I needed to solve. How did he handle that in the swimming pool library? How do you do dialogue? How do you do a character entering or leaving a room? There's always something that you can learn from any paragraph. Yeah. All right, so 
this is the part of the podcast where we ask each of the participants if he or she would recommend the novel at hand. I have a feeling I know what the answer is going to be, but Gabe, thumbs up, thumbs down? I mean, clearly thumbs up. I don't know that I would recommend this as your first Alan Hollinghurst. Um, I, I would push The Swimming Pool Library or The Line of Beauty on you first. I urge you to read The Sparshall to Fair, and I urge you to read it twice. Yeah, Alex? I mean, speaking as someone for whom this was my first Hollinghurst, <laughs> I would still recommend it unreservedly, and I am going to go forth to his his other books now. So I so envy you reading this <laughs> for the first time, although obviously I need to read this one for the second. Thank you both for coming in to talk about this lovely novel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Audiobook Club. If you like this show, check out The Gist, a daily news and opinion podcast from Slate. Every weekday afternoon, host Mike Pesca sorts through the torrents of information in the news cycle. He selects a few stories that cry out for a closer look because of an odd fact, an untested argument, or a thesis to explore. Think of The Gist as a curated op-ed page, but with more jokes. Look for it every weekday evening. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. This podcast was produced and edited by Benjamin Frisch. For Gabriel Roth and Alex Barish, I'm Laura Miller. Thanks for listening.